So that the average dad is kind of a bumbling, oh, here you go, oh, there you go, uh, a bumbling buffoon. Um, and yet, social scientists are realizing more and more that just the tremendously important uh, place that fathers have within our society. We're learning more about that every, um, every week, it seems like. I'll share some stuff after the kids get dismissed. But for now, let's, uh, let's pray for our dads. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray for our dads. We pray for bald ones and hairy ones, for skinny dads with six packs and cuddly ones with one packs, for dads who tell terrible jokes and who can't even dance to YMCA, for dads who know how to fix things and for dads who only pretend they know how to fix things. And we pray for new dads and granddads and stepdads and adoptive dads. And we remember today, especially fathers who feel like failures, Lord, may they know your grace and hope and love. And we ask that you would comfort those of us who are missing our dads even more than usual today. We pray for those heartbroken fathers who have lost a child this year. We also pray for those who long to become fathers. Hear their prayers, God. And may they know the joy of spiritual parenting in your house. We remember today the terrible despair of fathers in war zones and refugee camps. May they somehow know your hope and may the cries of their heart be heard by those with the power to effect change. And in a world, God, where uh, there's so much pain and so many fathers are distant or absent or even abusive, we look to you afresh today. Father God, you are the source of unfailing love. You are the true and perfect model of fatherhood, especially for those of us whose human fathers were not good. And so please heal our many hurts and restore the dignity and the strength and integrity of fatherhood in our families, in our churches, and in our nations. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks, guys. You can be dismissed. Have a great time in Sunday school. We're going to be looking at Matthew, or sorry, Mark, chapter 5 today. So if you have a Bible, it should be one around you. You can just grab one, begin to head there. Uh, I had a short little letter from Dr. Meg Meeker, who's a Christian uh, doctor in the States. And she wrote just a good little one piece that I wanted to share about the uh, importance of uh, fathers in our society. She writes this, she says, Good men, please listen. Your children need more of your time, your heart, and your wisdom. You may not believe this because for 40 years you've been underappreciated, undervalued, and under-researched. And on behalf of the son and daughter who loves you, let me say I am sorry. Because you and your kids have paid a terrible price. And that must change. Furthermore, the answer to our country's most serious social problems isn't primarily better schools and more sophisticated, better government programs, but it is you, good fathers, and we owe it to you and to your country to get about the business of helping you to be better dads. Here are some things that you must know. The best way to boost your daughter's self-esteem is to show her more physical affection. When you live with your son, he is far less likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, or low self-esteem. He's more likely to get better grades, finish high school, and go on to college and graduate school. If you spend more time with your toddlers, their IQ is measurably higher at three years of age. When you engage your little children, they are better at solving problems. 
You are the best protection your daughter has from being trafficked. Having you at home put your daughter at a much lower risk for being sexually active, getting involved in high-risk behavior, suffering from depression and anxiety, or getting pregnant. Your families know the difference. Sorry, your infants know the difference between you and your mother from the moment that they're born, and you create a template for how your children, and especially your daughters, relate to male figures for the rest of their lives. I list these facts to give you concrete evidence regarding who you are in your children's eyes. I am convinced that if each one of you fathers could see yourselves through your own child's eyes for just 15 minutes, your lives would never be the same ever. You would discover something profound, that you are needed and loved far more than you can imagine, and it's high time that someone told you so. Uh, the story that we're going to look at today is a strange one, but in a really powerful way, it points us to God's fatherly love for us. It might not seem like that at first, first glance, but it, um, it really does reveal the father heart of God. Mark 5, verses 1 to 20. I'm going to read and kind of just teach as we read and move through this text. Verse number 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Last week, if you were here, Jesus had told his disciples, we're going to get in a boat and we're going to go to the other side. And he meant the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Where they're headed from is the uh, northwest, which from the kind of the area of Capernaum. And they're traveling into a region called the Decapolis. uh, Can we put the map up, Dan? Second slide. Yeah, so they're kind of moving from Capernaum into this region called the Decapolis. And we talked about the Decapolis last week, but just as a bit of a refresher and 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 expand some knowledge here, let's understand um, why this is such a risky thing and a scary thing for Jesus to command and for the disciples to agree to. 300 years before Jesus comes on the scene, you might have heard of this guy, he's called Alexander the Great. He conquers this part of the world. He conquers the Persian Empire, And in 334, arrives in the land of Israel, and he reconstitutes the land of Israel under the umbrella of kind of the Greek empire from the Persians. Alexander the Great had kind of a driving vision to spread Hellenism, the Greek worldview, over the entire earth. That was his ambition. Now, Hellenism, we might say today, is pretty tidally closely tied to what we would think of as humanism, where man is the center of all things. Uh, man is the measure of all things. Man is the glory of all things. So the human mind is the source of truth. If the human mind can't understand it or can't uh, prove something, it's just not true. The human body is the source of creativity and beauty. If a human being can appreciate something, if if a human being enjoys something, if it brings pleasure, it's a good thing, and it should be celebrated. Human conscience and decision-making is the source of what is right and wrong. What is right and wrong is determined by what seems right in our own eyes, what seems rational to us, what seems reasonable. And so within this worldview of Hellenism that Alexander the Great seeks to establish in this part of the world, Human beings are really at the center. Human beings, there, there are certainly pagan gods that are worshipped. But when the rubber meets the road, it's the human being, it's the human form that gets exalted and elevated. In the Decapolis, this is a region 
that was specifically designed to holistically form people, heart, we would say heart, soul, mind, and strength, into the worldview of Hellenism. Every city that was established in the Decapolis, the ten cities, had four institutions which Alexander the Great believed um, if Hellenism was taught in and through these institutions, uh, you, you would essentially take over the world. There'd, there'd be no stopping the movement and the spread of Greek philosophy. And those four institutions were the theater, the arena, like the sports arena, the gymnasium, which we think of as like a gym, but it's not just training the body, it's training the mind as well. You received instruction at the gymnasium. It was a little, little bit more like a, a dojo. And temples. Temples to the Greek gods and goddesses, but eventually by the time uh, Rome uh, conquers and establishes itself in Jesus' day, a lot of these temples also get set up to celebrate the great king and son of God, Caesar, Caesar Augustus, and all the successive Caesars who were deified by the time uh, the first century rolls around. So through the theater, the arena, the gymnasium, the temples, Hellenism, for a number of centuries in the Decapolis, kind of built a huge amount of momentum unabated. There was very little Jewish influence in the Decapolis, um, and it was kind of a which came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it because the, the Decapolis was so thoroughly humanistic, or was it just because um, God's people in general settled, settled on the west side of the Jordan River? It's probably a little bit of both. But what's important to know is by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Decapolis is just a thoroughly, what, we would, what uh, biblical people would think of as uh, pe- completely pagan. There's very little godly influence in the Decapolis. The Decapolis is enemy territory. Its entire, that entire region has structured itself on values with her, which are a 180 from what a God-fearing uh, Jew would have ascribed to, who's going to start on a very different set of premises. Man is not the center of all things. God is the center. Man is not the measure of all things. God is. Man's pleasure and man's glory is not the purpose of all things. The telos of the universe is God's glory and God's pleasure. So when Jesus says, go over to the other side, that has to rattle the disciples. Because this is, this is enemy territory. This is, um, the Decapolis was also understood and referred to by Jews as the far off country. It was the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but it was a far off country. Now it's not that far there's a city called Hippos, which in the first century was called Susida, which is about eight miles from Capernaum. You can see it from the other side. And this was a very wealthy area because after um, Alexander the Great conquered, um, he allowed some of his legions to settle in this area and legions of soldiers were given huge parcels of land and they dumped a huge amount of money into these institutions. So this was also a place of uh, what we would think of as a huge technological advancement beautiful arenas, beautiful theaters, beautiful gymnasiums. And it was always kind of calling to people on the other side. People, you know, religious, pious Jews in, in Capernaum and in that kind of region would look across and they thought, wow, this is, this is a, a whole society that is structured on human values. But it seems to be flourishing. It seems to be very powerful. It seems to be very influential. But it's a far-off country. 
not geographically, but morally, and in terms of what God wants for the world. So we can imagine in Mark 4 when Jesus says, we're, we're going to go over there. Over there? Like, though, does Jesus, he, ha, he does know. He knows what kinds of people are over there. That, those are like stone-cold pagans. Like, it doesn't get, these are people who, who couldn't even recite a word from the Torah. They're as far away from our values and what God wants as we can envision. And you want us to go? But they do. And last week we discovered that it's like the forces of hell were trying to prevent Jesus and the disciples from crossing the sea. This huge storm comes up, which is what the disciples were assuming would probably happen. You go into any enemy territory, the enemy's going to try and stop you. And then their worst fears get realized again. Jesus calms the storm, praise God. But then their foot hits the shore. They move on to this pagan land and all hell breaks loose. Verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Right away, another storm. They just survived one by the skin of their teeth and by God's grace. Now there's another one. This time it's in the form of a man. It's a man who lives in the tombs. And he has an unclean spirit. So to a Jewish person, he's double unclean. He has an unclean spirit, and he lives in the tombs. You're not allowed to have contact with the dead. Leviticus says you have contact with the dead, you become unclean. In Isaiah 65, 4, God shows his displeasure, and he calls out Jews who at the time of Isaiah's days were sitting among the graves, spending their nights keeping vigil, vigil, and who were eating the flesh of pigs. So this is a man who embodies to a God-fearing Jew kind of like the worst of the worst. He's a tomb dweller. He's, he's, he's a member of the walking dead. He's ritually and ceremonially unclean to the max. Verse 3, the man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been, often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is a dangerous offender. This is someone who's extremely dangerous. He's a threat to everybody who goes near him. They're trying to figure out ways to subdue him, but they can't. Uh, He has this supernatural power. He cannot be confined. He cannot be held back. And he's kind of been placed and relegated to solitary confinement. That's the way this community has dealt with him. He's been abandoned by his community. He's been abandoned by his family. He's been abandoned by his gods. He's been abandoned by his government. No one knows how to help him. Likely at this point, no one really wants to. No one probably cares about this guy. He's been dealt with. He's over there. Kids stay away. The mean, evil man lives up there. He's crazy. He's a whack job. He's a lost cause. He's beyond hope. Just leave him there. Don't provoke him. And hopefully, we'll all be safe. He cries out day and night. He cuts himself. So he's overcome by this self-destructive desperation. We're seeing here a picture of a tortured soul, mind and body. He's naked. He's filthy. He's bleeding. He's scarred. He's wild-eyed. And verse 6 says, When he saw Jesus from a distance, 
he ran. Don't read the rest of that sentence yet. He ran right for them. This is a terrifying thing. Let's be honest. If, you, if you're walking down Baker Street and someone's jabbering stuff out loud and you don't know if they're high or if they're dealing with mental health issues, it is very tempting for you to walk to, to stay on the, on the far side of the street or to be like, oh, I actually want to look in this store. Okay, yep. Imagine if someone who was a dangerous, violent, known violent offender cut, bleeding, naked, is charging at you. I mean, imagine the disciples' fear. They just had one brush with death, and now, again, it seems like this emissary from the pits of hell itself are coming right at them. We're not going to get one mile into this place, and we're going to get killed. We told you, Jesus, this is the bad place. It's bad people. We should not have come here. This is a terrible idea. He runs towards Jesus, and he falls on his knees in front of him, just collapses to the ground, and he shouts at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A few things there. He ran, didn't attack Jesus. He fell on his knees in front of him. It's a posture of complete submission, and it's a posture of fear. The demons are in control of this person, and they're running to Jesus out of fear, not to attack him, and they fall before him. And notice that the demons know exactly who Jesus is. Not everybody around Jesus has even pieced this together yet. The demons know you're not just a prophet, you're not just a great teacher, you're not just a miracle worker, you are the son of the most high God. The demons operate with a very clear picture of who they're dealing with. They say to Jesus, swear to God that you won't torture me. Which is actually the f- kind of the weird, funny part of the story, right? What are the demons doing? The demons are, be- some of the translations say, I adjure you to God, or I beg you in God's name. The demon's trying to protect itself from Jesus by calling on a higher power. It's, it's, it's the demons, some commentators say it's the demon's way of trying to bind Jesus from acting. In God's name, you're not allowed to touch me. You're not allowed, not allowed to do anything. So the demon is trying to protect itself from the threat of Jesus. Think about the disciples watching this unfold in real time. They've gone from, this is the clear and present danger coming toward us. He drops to the ground. He's begging Jesus not to obliterate him. What? What is going on? The demon is fearful of torture. And the demon is trying to appeal to a higher power to protect itself. Which is awkward because Jesus is the higher power. Spoiler alert, it's not going to end well for the demons. They're not going to get what they want. Jesus is not going to protect them. 
They know Jesus has the power to destroy them. They're begging with Jesus. Mark says not to send them out of the area. Do you know what Luke 8.31 says? It says the demons repeatedly begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss. Don't, don't just like kick us out of this region, Jesus. They're like, don't obliterate us. Don't torture us forever. They know, Revelation 20, you can, look, you can look it up, they know the end game of all of this is Jesus is going to come and judge and the devil and his demons will be sent to hell to be tortured forever because hell was prepared for the devil and his demons. What these demons are saying is, you're not supposed to do that until later. Please, please don't start that on us now. Don't, don't start torturing us now. Please. Please, Jesus. They, they, they know their fate is sealed. They just want a bit more time. They thought they had a few more centuries. And notice the name Legion, like a Roman Legion. Roman Legion at this time is about 6,000. Commentators say the numbers don't really matter. What you need to know, this is an army of demons. This is a demon that was taken over this person. We don't know the backstory. But you know what's interesting? It never occurs to even one of the demons to say, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's like thousands of us. There's only one of him. Let's just get out of this guy and attack Jesus. Jesus has cast out demons before. One. There's thousands of us. Let's combine our powers and take that. No. Every, the whole army. You ever see an army genuflect on a battlefield against one person? Because that's what you're seeing here. You're seeing a legion of soldiers who have terrorized this region for who knows how long. People living in fear, they try and chain up this person. And now they're all on the ground begging for mercy. Jesus is the king, and he is powerful. These demons are brought to heal, just like the storm was a few hours ago. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Notice, Jesus gave them permission, which I also think is funny. He just permitted them. Jesus, could we please just go into the unclean pigs? We're unclean spirits, so that's actually our where we're supposed to live in unclean things. I'll allow it, right? Maybe Jesus says, say, please. Demons don't get to do anything they want to do in Jesus' presence. Like, they have to just constantly ask for permission. 2,000 run down the steep bank. They go into the pigs. Maybe they thought they were going to be safe, but they run down the steep bank. Now, remember, the demons are trying to escape and survive, and so the subtext here is that Jesus has brought judgment on the demons through the pigs. He sends the pigs into the water. Some people think, oh, that was the demons driving the pigs mad and they went into the water. It's it's conjecture, but I would say that the force and the narrative weight of the the text helps us to understand Jesus is enacting judgment on that uh, demon legion right there and then. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened and when they came to Jesus they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons and he was sitting there and he was dressed and in his right mind and they were afraid those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon possessed man and told about the pigs as well 
And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. A few things here. Number one, don't miss it. It's very important. This man gets fully restored because of an encounter with Jesus. Five minutes ago, he was a dangerous, violent offender. He was seen as a lost cause to anybody who had known about him or heard about him. He was the, probably to the surrounding community, he was kind of like this embodiment of evil. He was the embodiment, certainly, of impurity and uncleanness to Jesus' disciples. But now look at him. Can you picture it in your mind? He's dressed, he's sitting there, he's in his right mind. For the first time in who knows how long, he's seeing the world as a non-demonized person. He's free. He's, he's, he's breathing new psychological air, new spiritual air. Don't miss this. No one is beyond the healing, redemptive touch of Jesus. Nobody. There is no one who is too unclean. There's no one who is too damaged. There's no one whose past is so dark, so violent, so sinful, sinful to the rafters that from Jesus' point of view, oh, my hands are kind of tight here. I can't really do much. No one is in that situation. People from the town rush out to see what's happening and it says they were afraid, which is a weird translation. Because remember in uh, Mark 4 when Jesus rebukes the disciples for being afraid? He says, why? Don't you have faith? Why were you so afraid? He says, delos? That's not the word that Mark uses here. Mark uses the same word here as the disciples had towards Jesus after they calmed, after Jesus calmed the storm. These people weren't afraid they were terrified. Phobeo. They were phobic. We hear a lot today about words like Islamophobia or homophobia. Literally, the townspeople had Jesusphobia. They were phobic of Jesus. They were terrified. And they begin to plead with Jesus. They begin to beg him, just like the demons beg Jesus to not torture them, they beg Jesus to leave the region. Go back where you came from, Jesus. Go to the other side of the lake. We don't want your kind here. We don't like what this, what's happening here. You get out of here. What? Think about that for a second. Play, play the narrative out in your head. Some Jewish miracle worker, no one's ever heard of before, but that's besides the point at least on this side of the, of the Sea of Galilee, he's just stepped into your community and he's brought a miraculous, he's brought a miracle of healing and restoration to a man who was a threat to your community and to everybody in the surrounding area. Why isn't the community's reaction to just bring all their sick and all their lame and all their tortured souls to Jesus? Isn't, isn't that what we would do? This guy can do that? 
I know people in situations that are way less, of a, way, people who are way less screwed up than that guy who lived in the tombs. I, I want to bring my daughter to Jesus. I want to bring my friend to Jesus. I want to bring this situation to Jesus. They don't do that. They're like, you get out of here. You get out of here. And the reason is, all surrounding the pigs. Pigs. That's the, that's a little clue in the story that something else is going on. There's a herd of pigs in the region, uh, thousands of them, because pigs in the Decapolis are bred as part of temple sacrifice to Greek gods, primarily Demeter, who's a Greek goddess of agriculture and prosperity. Um, Pig sacrifices are very, very common. That was the animal of choice in pagan temple worship practices. There's at least 10 significant temples in the Decapolis. Pigs were a big part of this region's economy. But more than just being an an economic foundation, the pigs are are also tied to this region's sense of identity, right? You've got this Greek goddess Demeter, the god of agriculture and fertility. Her sacred pig was the animal. Or sorry, her sacred animal was the pig. There was also a Roman legion, according uh, to historians, posted near one of the cities in the Decapolis, Hippos, whose standard, every legion has a standard, right? There's one Roman legion stationed outside of Hippos whose standard was the boar's head. So the pig is closely tied to these people's sense of identity. It represents their security. It represents their source of power. It represents their source of prosperity. The pigs are used in temple sacrifices, so it's linked to worship and what they're willing to sacrifice towards. The pig is a symbol that held this community together. It was an idol, And it was a very popular idol. And here's this Jesus character sauntering in from the other side. And he's come over. And he's cost these people money. And he's insulted them socially. He's made a mockery of their gods. You know you put these pieces together, it's not hard to, um, to envision the conversation of the townspeople. Who does Jesus think he is? I actually don't care who gets helped and healed by this Jesus person. If it's going to cost me money, and if he's going to get in the way of me worshiping my gods, then get him out. If he's going to cost me money and if he's going to interfere with my ability to worship my gods, I don't want him here. Now that's a reaction that's 2,000 years old to Jesus. But it sounds very contemporary. A lot of people like Buddy Jesus. Jesus the nice guy, Jesus the prophet who just teaches love and forgiveness and hope. But Jesus, who's a threat to our gods, yeah, no thanks. Healing, blessing, prosperity, for sure, Jesus. Rebuke, challenge, calls to repentance. Get out of here. Here's the the religious version of that objection. Of course I love Jesus. Of course I I go to church. I want to be, I want to follow Jesus. I'm a disciple, yada, yada, yada. 
Um, but when Jesus starts, starts costing me money and starts affecting my standard of living, I'm going to drive him away. Because I have a set of idols, and I, had a, I have a set of priorities. And if Jesus intends to let me keep them, he's totally free to stay, for sure. But he better understand that if he ever demands that I forsake those gods, I'm going to drop him like a stone. Friends, if that's our attitude towards Jesus, then we have seriously misunderstood him. Because Jesus is a king. And he's not just a king, he's the king. And you don't negotiate with a king. You don't threaten a king. You have two reactions to a king. You declare war, or you bow before him, and you say, my life is yours. Do with me what you will, because you're the king. You're sovereign. I think of these people's reactions, and I, I, I'm just flooded with the question, are we willing to lose materially so that others gain freedom? This, re- this, this guy was helped by Jesus, and the entire region's first thought is, that guy, see all those pigs? That, that, that Jesus guy just hit my pocketbook pretty hard. No one's celebrating for the guy. No one's gathering around him and saying, friend, son, uncle, na- former neighbor, welcome back. This is awesome. There's not even a mixture of celebration. All the region can think about is money and the threat that that money symbolically poses to their way of life and to their gods. They can't enter into celebration for what God has done. Are we willing to lose materially? Am I willing to lose materially so that other people can be connected to Jesus? Or do we love our gods too much? Do we love our gods of money too much, of prosperity? Do we like the idea of offering people hope and help in Jesus' name as long as it actually doesn't cost us anything? The gospel is free, but the mechanisms by which we get the gospel into people's lives often cost money. And if we want to... If you want people to hear and respond to the gospel, we have to understand that it's going to cost us. But when you hear about the results of the gospel, when you hear about people who have lived under spiritual oppression, who now come into a relationship with Jesus and find new life, and I hear those stories, and I swim in those stories, and sometimes I even get to participate in those stories, you know, I never look in my checking account and think, oh, I could have like 10% more money. That is kind of a tough decision. I never think that. People are worth so much more. Verse 18, Jesus was getting into the boat and the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him. But he said, go home to your family. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. We're so used to hearing Jesus' invitation to come follow me that when he actually says to someone, don't follow me, you can't come with me to the other side. That's that's not where I'm calling you. You know, this this is a... If you're a disciple... Here's this guy, he's just been transformed by Jesus, and he says, Jesus, can I follow you? 
can I get back into the boat? I want to learn all I can about God and about what it means to follow you, and I want to be with this, this ragtag group. Like, I have a new lease on life. Will you let me follow you, Jesus, into the boat? No. I'm waiting to go home. I'm waiting to go home. That is, try and imagine for a minute what that feels like initially to everybody seeing that. What is going on? Jesus didn't want this man to come back with him. Jesus didn't want this man to go to the other side. Jesus doesn't call him to follow him. Why? Because sometimes the place that Jesus wants to send us is right where we are. Sometimes the place where Jesus wants to send us is right where we are. And it's an amazing testimony because the man obeys. And he returns to one of the cities in the Decapolis. And he starts telling people what God has done for him. Don't, don't move too quickly over this. He has no seminary education. Five minutes ago, he'd never heard of Jesus. He's never read a word of Torah. He has been steeped in uncleanness and darkness for much of his life. What possible difference is someone like that going to make? Like, really? But Jesus says, what happened here, that is enough. You have enough to get started. So go. Go and tell people what God has done for you. You have enough. And do you know that within 40 years, there were certain cities in the Decapolis that were being used as Christian cities of refuge for Christians during the Roman overthrow uh, and revolt and the Jewish revolt of 72. Within four decades, there's already a permeated Christian influence. And it started with this guy. That lost cause on a hill who lived in the tombs dirty, naked, filthy, broken, damaged, screwed up, nobody, a violent offender. Jesus sent him with a story. That's all he did. Just go tell people what Jesus, what I did for you. Uh, to me, that's amazing. Do you have a story? Do you have a story of how Jesus has touched you? That's all you need. We should continue to learn more, of course. But we don't need to wait until we have this much knowledge, this much expertise. We have perfect articulation. We have the perfect strategy, the ideal plan. Just go and tell people what God has done and, and tell them about how God has had mercy on your, in your life. I thought about the story a lot and how to end it, and I thought um, it's interesting because I think Mark is cluing us into the fact that, uh, you know, on the surface it looks like the biggest issue in this man's life was legion, was this demon. And it's a big issue. You don't want to minimize that. Mark makes sure we don't minimize that. But that was a literal demon. But I think Mark gives us a clue that there was a greater demon, and I'm speaking now metaphorically, that this man um, had to face. And, and this metaphorical demon was actually even a greater threat than the one that had demonized him. And that was this thought, this idea that he was unloved and that he was unworthy of love. Remember, he's abandoned. We know he has family. Jesus tells him to go back to his family. They've left him for dead. 
The whole community has left him for dead. When you face that kind of abandonment, that kind of social isolation for so long, people hoping to try and just chain you down until you starve to death, essentially, and die. It's not, a, not too much of a slippery slope before you begin wondering, does anybody actually care about me? Am I worthy of love, or am I just um, a scourge and a plague? I believed, I don't know psychologically how you couldn't believe that, you, that no one cared. He had been abandoned to the tombs. His community, his gods had left, had left him for dead. No one cared, not even his family members. He thought whatever life he had left to live, he was going to live under the crushing truth that he was unloved and that he was unclean, he was unworthy of love. And I think that's a demon that a lot of people struggle with today. I bet you a lot of people who walk up and down Baker Street struggle with that demon. The hidden whisper that says, you are not loved, you are not even worthy of love. Maybe there's people here this morning. That, that haunting whisper is deep, 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 but it surfaces every once in a while. Maybe you feel unloved, unworthy of love, even from your family members, nobody. If you were in your honest moments, you would say, I think loves me or genuinely cares about me. Maybe you feel abandoned and isolated and you assume the rest of your life is going to be lived under the crushing weight of that truth and that reality. But this text and Jesus wants to confront that lie this morning. That is not true. You are not unloved. You are not unworthy of love. You're actually loved and treasured to a degree that you probably don't even fully understand and can comprehend. And this is why I can say that. Because at the end of this story, there's a really good news ending. The guy is, is restored. He's put right. He has a new lease on life. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. But by the end of the book of Mark, we're going to see Jesus trade places with this man. There's going to be an exchange and at the end of the book of Mark, it's Jesus who's going to be the naked one. And it's Jesus who's going to be the one stripped of even his clothes. At the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is going to be the one bleeding and cut and crying out. And Jesus is going to be the one who gets abandoned, even from his own father. And at the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is going to be driven not just into the tombs, but he's going to be driven into the tomb. He'll be sent into the abyss. Why does that happen? It happens because Jesus put himself in your place out of love for you. He puts himself in your place in order to save you. He goes into the tomb for you. He dies on the cross for you so that you could know, not just as an idea, but as an experience in your bones, that you are loved and that you're worthy of loved and that just like this guy learned that day, Jesus would cross over to the other side to just bring healing and restoration for one person. You notice that? You notice Jesus does that? And he would have done it for you. This is Mark saying Jesus would absolutely have gone through everything that he did, not if it, if it would have just been about one person. If, it just would have, if you would have been the only lost one, the only unclean one, the only one sitting in darkness, 
He would have done the whole thing just for you. And when you see Jesus being driven into the tombs, when you see him stripped naked, when you see him beaten and humiliated and abandoned, and when you see him doing that and you realize that he's doing it for you, then the deepest demonic lie that our hearts can believe, that we are not loved or that we are not worthy of love, those things get expelled. Those things, that lie gets exercised from our heart because of the gospel. And then for the first time, your heart can sing because you know that you are saved by love and through love and for love. And it's all because of Jesus. So now, let's go home to our families and our friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for us and how he has shown mercy on us. Let's pray. As we close in song, God, may we sing as a people freed. Freed from chains of uncleanness, of darkness, of violence, of hatred, of demons, of lies. Free us and help us to walk in that freedom as we follow and love you. Amen.